1: The other cannabinoids typically don't have the euphoria that THC has, mainly because they work less effectively at the CB1 receptor, CBD being a really good example, CBD being cannabidiol. And cannabidiol has other mechanisms, such as an effect on serotonin receptors when it comes to anxiety, but also is a very potent anti-inflammatory that works both on the CB2 receptor but other mechanisms to decrease inflammation in the body.
2: Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm the publisher and editor-in-chief of The Tonic Magazine and producer and host of The Tonic Talk Show and podcast. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost 52 pounds through exercise and nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody could. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today we'll learn about medical cannabis and pain management with Umar Sayed. We'll discuss the shame about shame with Carlisle Jansen. We'll explore springtime treatment of seasonal allergies with Dr. Harisios Liagoftis. And lastly, we'll find out about behavioral activation with Tracy Sograti. But first, a little bit of business.
1: Suffering with pain or arthritis? Having trouble sleeping due to stress and anxiety? Understand the benefits of medical cannabis science. Optican CB4 relief soft gels are formulated with patented Bezosort pharmaceutical technology and are clinically proven to deliver four and a half times more CBD into your bloodstream three times faster than conventional CBD capsules. That's reliable relief in a nutshell and in an Optican soft gel. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist and sign up at Opticant with 2 nsca Omar
2: Syed is the president of Optican, which is the medical wing of Heritage Cannabis. He was the CEO of Optican Inc., previous senior VP of corporate development of Med Relief Corp., and he has 20 plus years of leadership in pharmaceutical and medical cannabis industries, including international corporate strategy for Pharma Science Canada. Welcome to the show, Amar. How are you doing? Great. Thanks. So we're here to talk about medical cannabis and how it works and how it might help us with pain management. You ready? You up for that? Absolutely. Let's start at the very top. Love starting at the top. So what are cannabinoids and how does it interact with our system?
1: Yeah, so I mean, look, the, the science of cannabinoids has been evolving over the last 50 years. In the 1960s, there was a lot of great work done by Dr. Rafi Mishulam in Israel who first isolated THC and uh, cannabidiol, the cannabinoids that are most likely found in plants, cannabis plant and hemp plants. But the real science behind the endocannabinoid system was really fully elucidated in the 70s and 80s, and that is the fact that we have CB1 and CB2 receptors in our body. And these CB1 receptors are generally in the nervous system, central and peripheral nervous system, and where CB2 receptors are generally in the immune system, so your lymphocytes and related tissue. So the cannabinoid system in our body has endogenous chemicals called cannabinoids, endogenous cannabinoids, such as 2AG and anandamide that work on these receptors. The cannabis plant and the hemp plant, which is basically cannabis without the THC, have cannabinoids that are called phytocannabinoids. So THC and CBD are the two most common ones. So there are up to over 80 cannabinoids known from the plant, from phytocannabinoids, uh, the phytocannabinoids. And they have different degrees of pharmacologic action, both on the CB1, CB2 receptors, and other mechanisms of action we can get into, especially when it comes down to pain. Okay. Do we know
2: the purpose of cannabinoid system within our body? Like, we understand the nervous and the limb system, but what does that system do?
1: Yeah, for the most part, the cannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid system modulates hyperfiring or hypofiring of the CNS or peripheral nervous system uh, neurons. And it controls or modulates, rather, inflammation and other related mechanisms associated with the immune system. And the nuances of how that works really is specific to the cannabinoid we're talking about. So, for example, THC. THC is a a cannabinoid that works on CB1 receptors and CB2 receptors. And it's the one cannabinoid that really most people know the most. It's associated with the euphoria associated with the cannabis plant. And meanwhile, the other cannabinoids typically don't have the euphoria that THC has, mainly because they work less effectively at the CB1 receptor. CBD being a really good example, uh, CBD being cannabidiol. And cannabidiol has other mechanisms, such as an effect on serotonin receptors when it comes to anxiety. Mm-hmm but also is a very potent anti-inflammatory that works both on the CB2 receptor but other mechanisms to decrease inflammation in the body.
2: Wow. Okay. So, let's focus on pain because we're going to talk about pain today sure. exclusively and maybe okay. you'll you'll come back another day and we'll talk about the other good sure. things that the cannabinoids do. Mm-hmm. But like how does it work within our pain receptor system? Like how do they yes. help?
1: So, THC, the one cannabinoid that most people aren't familiar with, works very effectively at shutting down hyperfiring neurons. By the CB1 receptor. And that especially is more important for neuropathic pain or pain associated with a damage or a, an effect on the nervous system. That is not the kind of pain most people feel, by the way. Right, yeah. The vast majority of people have pain associated with inflammation. Mm-hmm. And THC has less of an effect on that, and CBD has a much greater effect on inflammation or controlling inflammation. There's a cytokine pathway or cytokine cascade that is associated with inflammation and CBD is quite effective both to the CB2 receptor modulation and other mechanisms to decrease that that cytokine release and therefore you get less inflammation. Less inflammation means less pain. Typically for most patients like osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis and other inflammatory pain conditions including acute pain associated with injury, mm-hmm. CBD can be quite effective in decreasing that under underlying inflammation and therefore decreasing the pain.
2: Right. Your knowledge of this is far greater than mine. I understood also that like the THC and the CBD can interact such that if you're taking a CBD based product, having a little THC in it may actually make the CBD work better.
1: Is that true? Yeah. So without getting too much into the science of it, because I don't want to bore people with it. (laughs) THC, because it has a different mechanism of action on the CB1 receptor, yeah. can decrease neural activity associated with pain, and CBD is working more on the inflammation. Good. That's how they work somewhat uh, synergistically, or they, uh, they call the entourage effect. Yeah, There's also some science out there that there is THC can increase the sensitivity of CB2 receptors to CBD and other things, but for the most part... They work somewhat differently and they work better together, but you don't need high doses of, of both. And the optimal ratio really comes down to the condition. Right. So it's sort of
2: ailment specific, right? Like you mentioned before, like there, there's the chronic pain, right? Which, right? which is inflammation based, but then there's sort of like... The resultant pain of a of a trauma, which you know you might need a totally different package. To, to, yeah, to make- I,
1: I mean the way I think about it for the most part is this: look, CBD does not have a lot of. Let's talk about something that's really important for most patient people yeah. to consider: therapeutic window. Right. Okay. Yep. Therapeutic window is what is the dose required or the the level of a compound required for its pharmacologic effect? So, how much CBD do you need, for example, for inflammation control, and how much? CBD will actually cause side effects. So Mm -hmm. that defines the window, the lower and the upper side. THC has a very narrow therapeutic window. So the side effects associated with THC on the low and the high side, that window is much narrower. CBD has a much wider therapeutic window. And that's what really makes these products useful on a day-to-day basis for a lot of patients. You don't want to have the side effect, but you want to have the effect. Of course, yeah. So from that perspective, or for chronic pain especially, higher CBD doses can be tolerated on a regular basis without any real motor impairment or cognitive impairment, which yep. is important for most patients. Whereas with THC, that's more of a concern. So for the most part, products that we make, for example, at Optican, we focus on having the right amount of CBD and a very low amount of THC for synergistic benefit. Because we think that's the vast majority of patients out there with inflammatory pain will benefit from high CBD and low THC. That makes sense. Now, I know your expertise
2: is in delivery systems. So let's let's talk a little bit about how the body can absorb and take in the good stuff.
1: Yeah. So this is really an important area, and I think not an area that most people talk about, but it's been an area that I've I focused a lot of my career in terms of both safety and uh, efficacy. Mm-hmm. So most people associate cannabis with or cannabinoid therapy with inhaling vapor or, you know, smoking a dried flower that's uh, in a joint or uh, vaporizing it, etc. Yep. The reason is because that is the most efficient way to get cannabinoids into the body through the lung. The lung has a huge surface area, and if you, when you inhale the vapor, you can get a very good absorption. Eighty to ninety percent is absorbed actually, as as much as through the lungs so of the dose that you take in. The problem, of course with inhaling uh, vapor is the stigma, number one, associated yeah. with it. And number two, there are safety concerns. So uh, even with vaporization versus even smoking, there are safety concerns of one of the long-term effects of chronic use of inhaled vapor, especially from a medical perspective. Yeah. I'll leave recreational alone because I think that's more sporadic and less, less often, but somebody taking a medication on a daily basis, a few times a day, there are some safety concerns. So Uh, Why not just give it orally, as people say? Why why not just take an extract or oil, et cetera? Well, you can. Uh, The problem is most cannabinoids only have about 8% or 10% absorption when you take orally. Oh. Yeah, it's very low. And as compared to inhaled, just 80 to 90%, or could be as high as 80 to 90%. So what I focused a lot of our effort in building products is to increase that 8 to 10% absorption to a much higher number. So in the case of CBD, we use something called Vesasorb technology. Which helps improve the quality of the product and stabilizes it. But also we've shown through a clinical trial that was published in a peer reviewed journal in two thousand nineteen that when you use resorb in conjunction with C B D that we can increase the absorption from eight to ten percent to forty to forty five percent. Wow. So a four and a half X fold uh, increase. That really changes the therapeutic benefit of the products for C B D. The other way to do this, not just using Vezoscorp technology that increases the absorption when you take the product and swallow it, is to come up with an alternate route of delivery. And what we do is a sublingual absorption. Sublingual means that we ta- we have CB4 control uh, film strips. They have CBD and CBDA. We'll get into that later, It's why CBDA. But by putting that film strip under the tongue, where there is a lot of blood flow, vascular blood flow, you can get absorption directly from under the tongue rather than the product being swallowed. That increases the absorption and increases the rate of absorption so that you can actually benefit from the effects of CBD within 10 to 20 minutes or less rather than wait an hour or three hours if it's unformulated CBD. So both having good technology, Vezisorb, and then having an alternate route of delivery helps to increase the efficacy of CBD for controlling pain and other symptoms. Okay.
2: I think a question you probably get asked a lot is, you know, are there risks to taking medical cannabis? Do
1: you want to address that? Yeah. So listen, there are risks associated with most pharmacologic therapy, and it's just a matter of degrees. So with THC, uh, which again, most of our products at Opticant, we try to minimize the uh, THC levels Mm -hmm. for this reason. It's a therapeutic window issue, and the risks really are cognitive impairment, and motor function impairment. So can you drive after you're taking a dose, after taking a dose? And I think, again, it's a matter of knowing how you react to THC right. and minimizing your exposure, especially when you think you may have some impairment and that you don't want that impairment. THC has been considered habit-forming, but it's not addictive in the sense opiates are. Mm-hmm. So that's one good news when it comes to cannabinoids in general. Now, CBD, on the other hand, is not habit-forming, Right, it does not have motor impairment and does not have cognitive impairment. So, CBD is a very different um, molecule and much more interesting from a therapeutic perspective, because much many more people can benefit from it without any serious risk associated with it, with regards to habit forming addiction. Or motor impairment. So, so what, with, the, with the habit forming
2: issues, has that been empirically tested, or is that statistically and, and medically tested?
1: Yeah. So, THC empirically, from an empirical uh, standpoint, does not have the physical addictive properties associated with alcohol, benzodiazepines, and opiates. Okay? Right. It does not. Mm-hmm. It does, however, can have a psychological dependence associated with it. Right. Which is very different. So, puts it in a very different class in terms of being less harmful. And the potential harm uh, reduction that you need with the other class of drugs does not apply nearly to the same degree uh, with cannabinoids, especially with uh, drugs that are not THC. Right,
2: and and that... To my mind, that's one of the key benefits of medical cannabis as opposed to the other options, right?
1: right. That's right. Are there others? There, well, the other benefits are chronic exposure does not lead to any major long term side effects that we know of. The high, very high doses of CBD, not the kind of doses that are in our products that we would ever recommend, can be related to uh, some sort of liver inflammation uh, called fatty liver. Uh, That was seen in children when we use the drug Epidiolex with very high doses of CBD for controlling seizures. But for most people with normal low doses that we recommend for inflammatory pain, that's really not that much of an issue.
2: Okay, so I guess the bottom line is if, if I'm taking a cannabinoid product that includes THC, I'm probably not going to get high, right? Not, and certainly not at the levels that, that you're, you're in your products, right? Not,
1: not in the levels that we typically have in CB4 relief, our capsules. We only put 0.75 milligrams of THC. Like, it's less than a milligram. Some people are lightweight, some yeah. of no, them. I know. And with our with Vezoscorp technology, that 0.75 behaves like 3 milligrams of THC. Oh, okay. So what we always say to people is try the product at home in the evening where you have a control setting to know what your real response will be to THC. But again, we have a CBD, uh, we have a product CB4 relief coming out without THC as well. Oh, for, anybody, okay. for anybody who may have some symptoms that uh, that limit the utility of our products, we remove the THC altogether because, you know, you can get really good anti-inflammatory effect and chronic pain relief from that type of product. And one thing I'll add there is that, you know, people who are taking NSAIDs or Tylenol, Advil, etc. For, for maintaining chronic pain or controlling chronic pain, they typically will then, if that's not working, will go to opiates or put or potentially biologic drugs, there, for, especially for rheumatoid arthritis. Where we see CB4 relief and, and CBD products really being effective are in conjunction with the NSAIDs because they're safe to use. They don't cause GI side effects or any problems like that. And if you use them in conjunction with the therapy that you already are on, that can greatly benefit in reducing the dose of NSAIDs and possibly delaying or even reducing the opiate dose or eliminating the need for an opiate to c- control your chronic pain. So that's where I think it's really important, as an, as an additive therapy to help decrease the effects or increase the effects of other products and decrease the dosages or eliminate the need for opiates. Fantastic.
2: Thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you. with real pleasure.
2: That was Umar Sayed. You can learn more about his work by visiting optican.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss shame with Carlisle Jansen on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit free, and great tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice, the mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To fully benefit from probiotics, you need to ensure they're not destroyed by your stomach acids. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a variety of enteric coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. Find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label.
0: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Carlyle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop centre. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself, and you can find her educational videos and TED Talk at carlislejansen.com, and she can be contacted directly at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
3: Hello. I am well, thank you, and so nice to be in spring. And you?
2: Yeah, it's all good, right? Like walking outside without 18 layers, what could be wrong with that, right?
3: Yes, that's right. And you can go outside without a mask.
2: right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Sorry. You know that's an unspoken truth. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about sort of like a psychological, sociological aspect of sex. Yeah. And, and that is the concept of shame. Hmm. What is shame?
3: Ah, oh, shame is something that we, as social animals, have developed. Really, it's a way for support, love, and it was a way of survival. If you look evolutionarily at our histories, it was really, we had to have cultural norms, values, rules to make sure that everybody got along so that we developed these ideas of respect, of truthfulness, helping each other. And so we experience shame when we don't do those things. And it helps us to make sure that we're all in harmony as much as possible. Uh, Because those who didn't follow the rules would be banished out of the community. And, you know, in the era where you couldn't go to a grocery store, you know, you would die, right? There were animals that would kill you, all of those kinds of things. So you needed community. So shame was sort of something that we believe are, as humans, we develop to make sure that we all got along, we all followed rules and we were all safe together. We supported each other.
2: Right, so it's a construct, pro- I mean, not to piss people off, but like, you know, the <laughs> the, the concept, the concept of God, right? Like like it, it, it's like these are concepts that allowed us to live together as opposed mm-hmm. to like roaming families, right? It seems to me like this would have been necessary once we started congregating in groups, I would think. Yeah. Right?
3: And to be crude, for example, that killing someone was not acceptable. Yeah,
2: not cool. Right. Exactly. Right.
3: (laughs) Right. Just on a basic level so that we would sort of try and feel safe. I mean, obviously, people killed each other and they still do. And it's still not considered okay. But shame was this piece of trying to make us and often used, as you said, religiously to try and keep some kind of order. Right.
2: Because it's not your rules. It's the big guy's rules. Right. Like, you know, sorry, you know, I'd let you kill that guy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, God says you can't do that. So, yeah. sorry. Or God yeah, God is
3: saying, you know, I don't like you, but, you know, I say you did this wrong thing, so you have to go.
2: Exactly. All right. So, let's focus on societal norms and the interplay with shame sort of in the present.
3: Yeah. So, you know, sometimes what happens is these normalized standards are, are really narrow. And that what is determined as healthy, as good, as best for the community actually exclude a lot of people. And so what happens is that we have these ideas that thin people are the only ones who are healthy and good and that fat people deserve to not be... Respected, That heterosexual orientation is really the only option or the best way to go. That gender is male and female, and to be male, you have to look like this and act this way and not have emotions and have hard erections all the time. And for female, you need to dress in skirts and have long hair and be demure and all those kinds of things. So, you know, we can go on about people with disabilities, trans people are not considered okay or normal. And so we have learned to absorb these norms. And then we feel shame because we think there's something wrong with us. And we've been told this through the media, through sometimes our parents, our families, friends, comments from strangers that if we're fat, if we're in a homosexual relationship, if we are trans or we don't conform to gender standards, whatever it happens to be, that there's something wrong with us. And so we're shunned in the same way that we traditionally were. But in this instance, it's more shunned on a, on a sort of social acceptance. Level, And so we internalize that shame, right? And we, we take it in and we start to feel badly about ourselves because all the messages we're getting is that there's something wrong with us, that we're not sexy, that we're not healthy, that we're not beautiful, that we're not worthy of love because we don't fit with some really narrow view of what, you know, is on a GQ or a Vogue magazine.
2: Yeah. And those messages are unrelenting, right? Like oh, completely. Right. Particularly in the age of like limitless media, right? Like yes. so I, I would think it's 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 made even worse. Okay, so that's sort of like the normative mm-hmm. theory within the community, but I think on a on a micro level, shame also obviously plays in the context of sex and pleasure, right?
3: Oh, completely. I mean and it's it's really strong there. You know, again about who's sexy, but also what sex is supposed to look like. And so you end up with, you know, penises are supposed to be big and they're supposed to, you know, maintain erections for long periods of time. Breasts are supposed to be large, vulva lips are supposed to be small, you know, sex equals. When you say sex, most people the image that comes to mind is a penis entering a vagina. Right. And and the ultimate is, you know, a penis and a vagina. Everybody orgasms at the same time during intercourse. And somehow you end up in eternal bliss, you know, going down in the sunset forever and ever. You know, men um, have a high libido, women are demure, they need to be persuaded into sex, otherwise you're a slut or you're frigid. You know, there's ideas about what's okay to do, and you know, oral sex, you know, 30 years ago was seen as very deviant. Sex toys are sort of still becoming acceptable, and so all of these things, when when people can't get erections, when they can't ejaculate, when they can't orgasm, when they don't like certain things, when they like other things, when they're attracted to fat people, when they like kinky sex, shame enters into the equation because it doesn't, again, fit that narrow standard. What's wrong with me? What's You know, there's, there must be something wrong with me because... I don't get hard in these situations. I don't orgasm in these ways. I don't enjoy pleasure in the way that I'm told I'm supposed to. And the reality is that not everybody does that way. Not everybody behaves the same way. Not every, everybody's turned on the same way.
2: Yeah. And I think it all circles back to this notion of normal, right? Which which, mm-hmm. which is extremely mm-hmm. sort of like like, you can see that normal, even the modern version of normal, which would be different than normal 10 years ago, which would be different geographically or religiously or, you know, you know, in countries that are homogeneous or cultures that are homogeneous, have a completely different idea. You know, like we like to think of ourselves as being incredibly cosmopolitan, particularly in Toronto, but this concept of normal, like who is normal and and why, why does that matter? (laughs) Right.
3: And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But we're obsessed with this right about being acceptable and being normal and and it is it's very culturally specific and you know, as things change and we realize that maybe, you know, women can wear pants yep. and men sometimes want to wear lingerie and sometimes men like to be dominated, that there are trans people and non-binary people. And that we also expand even in the medical field that, you know, erections don't always manifest when desired, that sometimes vaginas are wet, but the person's not turned on or vice versa you know, we're finally doing studies looking at the breadth of what is actually normal, right? And what our bodies actually do and are designed to do. How do we address shame?
2: Like, I think you've established that there are sort of some negative connotations. Like in the modern society, why we have shame is probably different than why we needed it back, you know, in the Stone Age, right? So, right. yeah. So, so like, how do we deal with that now?
3: So, I think the first thing is to really notice the shame. Right? Sometimes it's so deep, and it's so veiled. And so, if we can notice, oh, that's shame. Wow, what's that shame about? Oh, I'm thinking that, you know, I would be more worthy if I were sinner, or thinking like, I should like this kind of sex, or it would be easier if I could get an erection this way, or I could orgasm more easily, or whatever it happens to be. Yep. So if you look at what that should is, what that norm is, and unpack it, then you can be like, oh, wait a second, who made up that definition, and who made up that rule, and is, does that really fit, and getting an idea that maybe that's an antiquated idea, and learning that, okay, so maybe there are other ways of looking at this. And really reflecting for ourselves whether that's a value, and trying to sh- transform those many, many years of ingrained messages, which doesn't happen overnight, but can start to shift when we start to challenge what those norms are.
2: Okay, so we have a couple minutes left. Can you mm-hmm. can you sort of explain what ways in which you see it's we're capable of, of sort of fighting back against this negative messaging?
3: Absolutely. So, I mean, a lot of people take it into their own hands. They become activists. They, you know, have an Instagram account and showcase themselves as sexy as someone who's fat or somebody with a disability. We can challenge those norms through writing. We can look for friends, for support groups, for groups online who share those similar perspectives and want to challenge those really narrow ideas that hold all of us back, really, and the things that we took for granted, but we realized, you know what? They don't necessarily have to be. They don't hold true for me. They don't have to hold true for you. And so what's beautiful about the internet is that we have online communities, online ways of finding people who have shared values so that we can feel not so alone, not so much often like a freak, right? Like, oh, there are other people who think this way, who believe this, who see it the same way and feel good and feel connected to others with like minds. That's how we start to transform it for ourselves.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: It's always a pleasure.
2: That was Carlisle Jansen. For more information about Carlisle, you can always visit carlislejansen.com. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss seasonal allergies with Dr. Harisios Vliagoftis on the Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens.
0: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
2: Dr. Harishos Vliogovtis is a professor of medicine at the University of Alberta and holds the GSK CIHR Chair in Airway Inflammation. He's an allergist working with the University of Alberta Hospital and a clinician-scientist with research interests in the regulation of allergic airway inflammation and in mucosal vaccination. The doctor has published over 75 original peer reviewed publications in this research area. He's currently funded by CIHR, the GSK CIHR Chair in Airway Inflammation, and the Lung Association of Alberta. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
2: It's always nice to have an expert in, and you've never been on the show before, but I can tell you this show is all about me and i suffer from terrible terrible seasonal allergies so i'm hoping you can help me are you up for the task i think so okay good (laughs) so what are the common allergens in canada for people who suffer from seasonal allergies
0: i mean for everyone the most common allergens are pollens that start kind of being in the air around kind of late spring the pollens can vary from place to place even in canada Probably there are very different pollens in the Paris southwest versus the eastern Canada. And in Canada also we have a lot of what people in some places like where I live in Edmonton call snow mold. All this mold that accumulates under the snow in the winter and starts kind of flying up in the air when the snow melts. Now, there are a few other more rare things, things like uh, weeds around and other kind of pollens from other uh, growing uh, plants. But these are the most common things that we see in Canada. And obviously out east especially, you know, in the fall we have a few different also allergens such as ragweed, that's also a big problem. We don't have as much of that west where I live.
2: I have a terrible ragweed allergy, so I know it firsthand. So what can somebody like me do to protect himself from these allergens? Is there anything we can do?
0: I mean, there are a few things definitely that can be done. Obviously, decreasing the exposure could improve your symptoms, but that's not always easy. You know, I mean, nobody wants to stay indoors for most of spring or most of fall. No. It's not the best approach to solve the problem, definitely. Nowadays, we have a lot of very effective medications that, uh, you know, consulting with somebody's physician, you can get... uh, of plan of how to use these medications to treat your symptoms. So the main thing we have that is very good is kind of antihistamines and we have the newer antihistamines that don't make people sleepy like some of the old stuff we used to use 20 or 30 years ago yep. and they are very effective to control the symptoms. Other medications we have that's very important, you know, nasal sprays, you know, what we call corticosteroid nasal sprays can help a lot of these symptoms. But there are also a lot of other options and The best way is to try to make a plan about what's most appropriate for you, talking to your family doctor, and if needed, also consult an allergist that can actually identify exactly what you are allergic to and maybe give you more specific approaches to how to deal with that. For example, allergen immunotherapy, as we call it, or allergy shorts, as people call it often, is a very effective therapy for certain kinds of seasonal allergies. And that's something that's worth exploring if you have really bad symptoms.
2: Have allergies become more frequent? Is this a, a modern sort of issue or, you know, are there other reasons that, so. yeah. yeah.
0: We think it's more frequent. I mean, what we see also, you know, kind of more epidemiologic studies when we do in young kids over the last few years, the rates are much higher than they were 30 or 40 years ago. And we have some theories and we think that they are probably in general, they are right how kind of the way we live and what we call clean environment, and I don't mean pollution necessarily, that we have some problems there, but uh, less infections around us and that exposure to dirt, let's say, that probably doesn't teach our immune system how to protect us from all these allergies. But You know, it's still a lot of research in this area as we still don't understand 100% how these things, why these allergies keep going up. How good
2: are the current therapies for for allergies and asthma? Like, If you were, I don't know whether you rate them out of 10, but in your estimation,
0: are the options out there optimal? Are they good? I mean, we can never say that something is optimal, obviously, there is always room for improvement. But I think nowadays we have excellent medications, both for allergies in general. You know, allergic rhinitis Kind of, you know, hay fever And all these problems But also for asthma Now, there are always a minority of patients That have very severe disease Or don't respond well to medications Or they have side effects from medications That they need other options And that's why research is still very active in this area Trying to find new things But I think we do fairly well these days on treating people It's more sometimes, you know for the patients to understand that they have to persevere with these treatments and they have to keep doing it, although sometimes becomes repetitive and difficult to follow, to help your symptoms.
2: Yeah, I mean, I took the allergy shots for years and years and the serum kept getting sort of denser and denser. And then, you know, luckily for me, these were childhood allergies. When I went through puberty, it sort of changed for me, like it was less severe. I I still, you know, I I can still suffer from season to season. If there's more pollen, you know, it could be a real disaster for me. But I don't have the constant allergies that I used to have in in my youth.
0: I mean, we see that often that many kids can outgrow their allergies or the allergies can become less severe as kids grow up to become Mm -hmm. adults. But we see it also the other kind of way that allergies can develop at any time of their life, of your life. So there are people that, you know, never had allergies as kids and start developing them in, you know, young adult or even kind of a little older, you know, develop allergies. So it is a lifelong problem. and. In general, you know, I mean, it can change for different people could be different, let's say. Got it. Let's focus
2: on your expertise because I know you do research in this area. What are some of the therapies that are under development that, that are exciting to you and, and, and show some potential?
0: Kind of the big progress we had over the last few years, I would say in medicine in general is what we call biologics. Yep. So these are kind of new molecules or uh, proteins or different, they could be have different characteristics that actually block specific factors that precipitate a disease or precipitate the symptoms of the disease. And in asthma especially, we've had some excellent medications like that over the last, I would say, about 15 years now. And newer ones are developed all the time. So by now we have about, I think, five of them, six actually of them, approved in Canada, and more are coming down the pipeline. I think that has been a big improvement because we can actually tailor our therapy more specifically for the problem of specific people. So these different biologics target different ways why you develop asthma and then possibly you can understand that, you know, for me the best one is A, for you is B or different medications are better for different people. I think that has been the biggest advancement. In addition to Even the previous one where we have really good inhaled corticosteroids that has been probably the most effective medication over the years to kind of improve asthma. I remember when I was training uh, even like 30 years ago, you know, inhaled corticosteroids were fairly new and we had a lot of problems with patients with asthma. Much more hospitalizations, more severe disease than we have now. And obviously, there are other things coming down the pipeline. There are a lot of other approaches and a lot of new ways that I think that over the next 10, 15 years will also make a big difference.
2: What sort of things are you referring to?
0: So, you know, the main thing, obviously, is different targets that we have for different proteins that we kind of inhibit, but also kind of completely different approaches in kind of preventing disease, what we can maybe do to so people do not develop disease down the road. That would be obviously the best way, although it's not always easy. Or even different targets like, you know, for example, what we do that it's a kind of different protein that we think that if you target it early on, you might prevent the development of allergy and asthma, and what a lot of other people do like that. Or very different biologics where we can actually take advantage of the way our immune system work and activate the immune system to fight this disease. And these are also some very exciting way on that, getting cells out of the immune system, change them and activating them and then use these cells to treat the disease.
2: Does this pertain at all to the diagnostic side? Is that what you're referring to or, or is that something else?
0: So the diagnostic is another part actually of this whole thing. The diagnostic side is also very important. And mostly, you know, understanding exactly the reason that somebody develops asthma can help us tailor, as I said, specific therapies for somebody with asthma. And others do the same thing. Or also understanding early on how severe the disease might become down the road. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of options also in diagnostic areas and, you know, to actually find what we call biomarkers or find a specific characteristic that we can measure easily. And then we can tell somebody your asthma would get worse down the road. You have to be more careful. Your asthma would respond to this medication or to that medication.
2: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: So oh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about the things. I think it's an important problem, you know, and it's, and, you know, I would just say again, you know, people have to talk to their doctors and try to control the larges. We have very good ways of doing that these days.
2: Fantastic. That was Dr. Harishos Vliogoftis. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss behavioral activation with Tracy Sagrati on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To fully benefit from probiotics, you need to ensure they're not destroyed by your stomach acids. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a variety of enteric coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. Find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label.
0: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Tracy Sograti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage, and you can find her at Sogratiyoga.com. Sagrati Yoga on Facebook or at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my good friend. How are you?
4: I'm awesome. I always want to yell woohoo when you get it to the end of my bio. Yeah,
2: like, well, yeah that's me. Damn, you got it all. You got it going on. <laughs>
4: um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good, Jamie. I'm happy to be here. Let's do this.
2: Okay, so behavioral activation, what are we talking about today? What's that all about?
4: Okay, so behavioral activation, commonly known as BA, is a really amazing evidence-based treatment for depression, but also, you know, other mental health challenges like anxiety. And it's really based on this idea that uh, your thoughts, your feelings, your behavior, so just all the stuff that you do, the urges you get from your thoughts and feelings, and then the environmental around you or, or the situation that you're in are all interconnected in this kind of cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so if you want to change something, you don't have to change everything. You just have to change one of those things in the cycle, okay? And so one example I think that that you, you learned a long time ago, I remember when I met you, yep. this was big in your life, was exercise, right? Yep. So if you, you know, if you're having sort of a crappy day and you're thinking about your crappy day and you're feeling really bad, if you do a behavior like exercise, right, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the original problem, you instantly feel better, yep. right? And then that changes your thoughts, which changes your feelings and changes your environment. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And I think, you know, the biggest thing when I'm offering BA or behavioral activation to people is sort of first teaching, you know, your thoughts and your feelings are not necessarily facts. Yep. And um, it doesn't mean that your feelings aren't real. In fact, your feelings are real in that they're having a chemical impact on your body. So they're real, but But separating their realness from the facts is the the important and necessary step, Mm -hmm. right? And when you engage in BA, you often have to ignore how you're feeling or what you're thinking about a situation in order to do the behavioral activation. Because otherwise, as you know, and everybody listening knows, you can talk yourself out of anything. Yes. Right? In a good five seconds. Yes do I want to get up early and exercise? No, I want to stay in bed.
2: I have this discussion with, so I do this perverse thing where I exercise late in the afternoon, which is like yeah. at the nadir of everybody's in, like energies, right? Yeah. And and it's yeah. this constant dialogue. I will go into where Naomi is and I'll say, okay, I don't feel like working out. And she looks at me and she says, okay, yeah, but you're, you are going to. And, and of yeah. course I do, right? And the, criti- yeah. the critical step is changing into my workout wear. Because once I do that, then giddy up. I'm ready to go. Right?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want to do nothing when you're in your workout gear.
2: Exactly. Because then you yeah. you look foolish. Um, <laughs> so how do I know if BA as opposed to BS is good for me? <laughs>
4: Well, I know it's good for you. Yeah, I know. Um, but, it's true. No, no, I'm, yeah. teasing. I'm teasing. So I, I think it starts with people kind of reflecting and mm-hmm. asking, okay, well, do I do I know what the trigger is for my mood or, or my anxiety or when I'm feeling down? Mm-hmm. Okay. And if I don't know what the trigger is, probably this is something I, I would want to do with you. Do I generally find myself doing very little or have little pleasure or meaning in my life? Yeah. So even if you, so you could either do very little and that might be sort of a picture of depression or you might be doing a lot, but it's nothing that gives you, that connects you to joy, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, are there times when you feel better or worse, but you, you actually don't know why, right? So you're kind yeah. of out of touch with how, how things are affecting you. Like you. You might be feeling bad in response to a narrative that's going through your mind that you aren't even aware of do you have a difficult time uh, working with your negative thoughts, but uh, feel better? Notice that you feel better if you can actually get yourself moving, right? Mm -hmm. Doing something like the, you know, the example of you getting on your workout clothes. And then, you know, another question I ask people is like, do you even know what you enjoy or find meaning or, or purpose in? And if you're kind of unsure, about all of those questions, then it's a good indication that behavioral activation would be good for you. But to be honest, my secret is, is that I think it's good for everyone. Yeah. That's I, my take on it.
2: Yeah. No. Okay. Obviously you can only perceive things through your own prism. Right. So, yeah. so like yeah. I, I look at it and think, yeah, that makes sense to me. I know that it works for me. Mm-hmm. So therefore I assume it works in everybody else.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But I, um, uh, you know, whether that's true, I, I suppose we'll never know. Can you do this when you're in your lows, when you're in your doldrums, or do you have to wait until you're in a more neutral state to even try this?
4: Yeah, no, this is, this is my, I'm so glad that you asked that. It's the best question because that's exactly when you should be doing it. Okay. You know, if you wait until you're feeling better, that's kind of the classic picture of the person that's really suffering, Mm -hmm. right? They'll just think, oh, okay, I'm so tired. I can't like, I'm just going to wait until I'm feeling better. And you know, unless you're actually sick and you need to rest. In any other circumstance, if it's sort of about what's happening with your mood or your, your feelings, your emotions, action precedes the emotion, okay? Mm-hmm. So as long as you follow your emotion, you're not going to increase your motivation and you'll keep avoiding doing, you know, X, Y, and Z. But if you act first, then you'll actually increase motivation because it's it's an upward spiral that you create, right? Yep. Just doing the behavior activates a positive state, which means that you experience more success, right? In whatever you're doing, whether the success is, you know, improved mood or, or something that happens professionally, and those positive events then predict, you know, a better mood and you just keep moving up that upward spiral rather than into the downward or the negative spiral.
2: I suppose it goes without saying that when we're talking about like mood enhancing behaviors, we are not talking about taking like alcohol and drugs, right? (laughs) Right? Right. Like I know what will make me feel better, but so I should do that activity and then I'll feel better. But that's not what we're talking about. Is it?
4: No. Oh my God. I never even thought of that. No, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. I never, I'm so glad that you just said that. Definitely. We are not talking about drugs and alcohol Uh, We're not talking about gambling. Um, We're not talking about, you know, excessive amounts of food or anything that is addictive. No, we're not talking about those things. What we are talking about is you know, engaging in positive social relationships. I should give some examples. Yeah. So, realizing that, yeah, yeah, okay? so yeah. yeah. So positive social relationships, right? So, uh, you know, social activities that are mutually uplifting, uh, where you hang out with somebody and you actually both walk away feeling better. You know, one person's not taxed, you know, where you learn something new, exercise. Exercise is, you know, often just as effective as antidepressants. It's just dose dependent, just like a yep. drug is. Yep. So you have to do it every day. Things like, you know, getting out of bed, cleaning your house, these little things, eating nourishing food, you know, forcing yourself to eat nourishing food. C-
2: can, can I throw some in there?
4: Yeah, please.
2: I find cooking to be therapeutic. Yeah, you do, don't you? I do. And gardening. It's weird, right? Gardening, like, exactly, yeah. Which, like, my personality, you would figure, no, there's no way he does that. But I actually, mm-hmm. I find, like, it, it's in uh, the rote things that I have to do in my garden that I can sort of clear my mind. I don't know.
4: You know, and it's funny, when I've dropped things off at your house, I've noticed your garden, so,
2: yeah. There you go. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: All right, so how does one activate this BA? What do we do?
4: Yeah. Okay, perfect. So everyone listening, you know, if you're not driving, write this down. First thing is just track your mood and your activities for about a week, right? So notice, you know, 10 o'clock I did this, I felt good, bad, you know, anxious, sad, whatever. And, and try to rate your feelings like, you know, on a scale of 10, you know, 10 being the best or the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're just going to get a picture of what makes me feel good and when do I feel really bad. Then the second step is to make a values, pleasure and mastery list. So what activities are in, line, in alignment with your valued life? You know, like what you stand for in terms of what you want with your family, in your social life, in your personal life, who you want to be as a person, your character, right? And, and what activities allow you to move in that direction rather than away from it? Mm-hmm. And then from there, once you've done those two things, you're going to schedule activities associated with your values, that include pleasure, mastery, and goals, just a little bit every day, okay? And then you literally... You just look at that schedule and you follow it. So if you know that seeing a friend that's uplifting once a week helps you, then you, you know, make a coffee date. And you you literally sort of do that for a week. You follow your behavioral activation schedule and then you tune in. You know, how do I feel? What needs tweaking? What could I add? Is there something I could take away? So you become a scientist. And, um, you know, what I say to people is, you have to understand that there's always a choice point in your behavior when you're about to do something, where you decide, okay, what is going to move me towards, you know, my valued, purposeful life, and what choice is going to move me away. And once you can develop the skill of assessing those things, you'll see that you'll make more and more decisions in the direction of your valued life.
2: Because the results are there. Because it's results. Yeah, be- because it
4: feels so good. It's naturally reinforcing.
2: Okay. That's good. Are there any tools that would assist in this, Tracy?
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking like uh, one thing is if listeners could just Google behavioral activation worksheet. Okay. okay. You can Google it. There's probably about a million hits of free worksheets. Literally just print it out and, and you'll see it's all over the internet. It's such a strongly evidence-based technique that they can find so much information. And, and if they need something, they can always email me, and I have no problem sending out free worksheets. I'm happy to do that.
2: Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. That was Tracy Sograti. To learn more about Tracy, please visit tracysograti.com. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Umar Sayed, Carlisle Jansen, Dr. Harishios Vliogoftis, and Tracy Sograti. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The March-April issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.